Let's pray together. Our Father, we do want our faith to rise. We do want truth to prevail over unbelief. Father, we confess that life in your world can be complex and confusing and that apart from you, it would be totally hopeless and meaningless. We want to live lives faithfully while you give us breath. So we ask that you would you'd give us wisdom from your word, wisdom to navigate life's realities and, and steward our lives well. Father, we pray that you'd give to each of us an ability now to hear what you want us to say, what you want, what you want us to hear. We ask that you would speak and rid us of all distraction so that we would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan Edwards uh, was an American preacher and theologian. He lived from the year 1703 to 1758. He was a brilliant guy, one of God's instruments in bringing about the first great awakening. If you know anything about him, you've probably heard of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <clears throat> Another writing of his that you may have heard of is The Seventy Resolutions, that he began writing as a young man and, and kept adding to through his life. These resolutions came up in our discussion on Friday morning in our men's group, and I wanted to share some of them with you, even if you're already familiar with them. But as you hear them, I want you to consider the, the time and the world that Edwards lived in, the first half of the 1700s. He did not enjoy many of the comforts and conveniences that we do now. Life was physically more difficult, and death was just everywhere. The life expectancy during the 1700s was around 40, with infant, infant mortality was so high, and death in general was just ever-present. So with that setting in mind, uh, listen to a few of his resolutions. Resolution number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. 52, he begins this one with an introductory note. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live as I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Now, our world is so sanitized and death is pushed into medical facilities so that we don't have to see it or think about it but not so in Edward's world. Death was everywhere. And I wonder if, if this reality of death gave him a focus on the kind of life that he should live. If nothing else, his resolutions tell us that he thought more about his death than most young men do. And this awareness of mortality is something that I think we would all do well to emulate. And nowhere in scripture is that sentiment articulated like it is in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'd, I'd invite you to turn there to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you open your Bible to the middle, it's after Psalms and Proverbs before the prophets. We'll be in the first 12 verses of chapter 9. And my hope is that we will all come away with a more acute awareness of our own mortality. I don't want you to leave here feeling like you attended your own funeral. Um, but I do hope that we are all chastened to, as, 
as Edwards put it, live with all our might while we do live. Before we get into our passage, just a few things to get us into the world of Ecclesiastes. The book has a reputation for being negative and having a skeptical view on life with its refrain, all is vanity and all, all, all is a vapor. But I think that's actually a misreading of the book of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon does in this book is he takes us through his observations of life, through his experiences, and then his attempts to explain it. And he shares with us his frustrations in these attempts. So he describes his pursuit of pleasure, his pursuit of accomplishments and of wisdom, and then his observations of things like work and oppression and inequality. And these lead him to conclude life, life is a vapor, all is vanity. But it also leads him to conclude that there is nothing better for us than to enjoy the life God gives us. So that's one thing about the book. Another just important feature of the book is that Solomon limits his, most of his comments to life as we experience it. There are times where, at least I, I want him to say something a little differently, to give us a little more explicit um, perspective from God's perspective, from, of, of God's purposes. But he is writing about life under the sun. That, so that phrase shows up five times in our passage. He knows there is something and someone above the sun. But that's not what he's writing about in most of this book. He is writing about life as we know it and as we experience it. And in our passage, he brings together a few themes from the book, and we'll follow those themes in the outline that's in your bulletin as we look at what Solomon has to say about life's certainties in verses 1 through 6, life's joys in verses 7 through 10, and then life's end in verses 11 and 12. So first, life's certainties starting in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So he begins with an acknowledgement of God, that he's there in all the deeds of his people. He says the righteous and the wise, all their deeds are in their hand. So he sees what they do, that their deeds are in his hand, and then he cares for them. He themselves are in, or they themselves are in his hand. So he's got their deeds and he's got them in his hand. So right off the bat, there's reason to be hopeful in our passage. God and nobody else, if you are God's, one of God's people, God has you in his hand. And this is a certainty. But he, he follows it up with an interesting line. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. I think what he means is that if you are God's people, he has you in his hand, but we don't know what life will bring. So I remember reading J.I. Packer somewhere, I don't remember what it, where I was reading it, but he said that belonging to God does not mean that he brings you into the control room of his purposes. You know, godliness does not grant you a, a view of the future. We don't know how life will play out, whether it is love or hate. Another way of just saying whether good or evil awaits us. We don't know. Both things are before us. And Solomon, will, he'll make it more clear as, as he goes. But what he's saying is that being righteous 
And being wise, being one of God's people, uh, does not guarantee a happy and clear future in this life. Because who knows what tomorrow will bring? And he goes on. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So our deeds and we are in God's hand, but we don't know what awaits us. And it's the same for all people. This passage, I think, is a good reminder that we do not affirm any kind of prosperity gospel. We do not affirm the idea that if you just believe hard enough and love God enough, that things will go well for you. God does what he pleases, and we don't know what will come. From our perspective, under the sun, it doesn't always look like God's providence works for his people. Solomon says the same event happens to all. And this list there in verse 2, it just contrasts good and bad, righteous and wicked, good and evil, clean and unclean, the one who wants to sacrifice and the one who doesn't, the one who wants to swear an oath to commit to the Lord and the one who would rather not. The same happens to them all, and this is an evil of life under the sun. And the evidence of this is just everywhere. Why is it that Nabil Qureshi dies at age 34, just a couple years ago? He was a Christian author, an apologist. Uh, he, he grew up in a Muslim family. He came to believe the gospel. And then he spent his life trying to bring others on the same path. He wrote a book, many, some of you maybe have read, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. He was a, a faithful man with a fruitful ministry. He had a wife and a daughter. So why is it? that he gets stomach cancer and dies at age 34. And someone like Hugh Hefner, the embodiment of so much wickedness and evil, lives to 91. Being good and clean and wise does not protect you from harm in this life. And being wicked and evil does not guarantee repayment in this life. The same happens to all. And this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. When a tsunami strikes an island, it's not just the wicked people who die. It's not only the fools who inexplicably lose their jobs. This is what happens in a fallen world. And not only that, it gets worse. He says, also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Well, isn't that just heartwarming? You can put that on a card for the high school or college graduate in your life. There's evil around you, there's evil in you, then you die. Have a great summer. <laughs> but this is a certainty. And even God's people feel the truth of this. The righteous and the wise, he calls them. Even they, even we, have evil and madness in our hearts. Right? We just heard Jim preach Romans 7 not too long ago. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's evil in, in all of us. Then verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog 
is better than a dead lion. So even though life is unpredictable and often dark, there is hope while we live. Better, he says, to be a living dog than a dead lion. Remember, a dog was not exactly man's best friend at this point. It was a dirty scavenger. But still, he says, better to be a dog that's alive than a lion that's dead. And he explains his point in verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. When you are alive, you know that you will die. And knowing you will die should urge us to live accordingly, as it did for Jonathan Edwards, to live with hope that we won't waste our lives. The living know this, and the dead, he says, do not. They know nothing. When he says that, that the, that the dead know nothing, he's not denying an afterlife. Uh, and he says earlier in the book that God has put eternity into our hearts. He knows there is an eternity. He knows there is an afterlife. But from our perspective, here under the sun, death is final. And this is how the living experience it, right? When people we love die, they are gone. We know they haven't ceased to exist, but they are gone from us. They know nothing of, of life here. They, know they have no more reward to live for, and they are forgotten. Verse 6, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. When people die, they are gone, and all that they cared about their love, their hate, their envy, goes with them. They have no more share in this life. So these are some of, God, of life's certainties, certainties. God knows the big picture. We don't know how our lives will play out, and we will die and be forgotten. So you could, you could read these six verses and despair that this is the path for all of us. You will be forgotten. Think of how many people die and how few people are remembered past one generation. Not many. Or you could read this and respond the way I think we should respond with a sober hope. Hope because there is life to be lived and sober because you will die and you will be forgotten. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. And this is a great evil. So I think there are countless ways that this should influence the way we live. And Solomon, you know, he spends the next few verses, 7 through 10, getting into that. But first, look back at verse 6. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. I want us to think... Think about the things that you worry about, the things that you spend your mental and emotional energy on. Not, I don't mean the, the legitimate things that concern us. I mean the petty stuff. I bet we all spend too much time and energy worrying about what other people think about us. Or maybe you've got a tense work relationship that dominates your thoughts. Maybe you've got a sports team that demands a little too much of your 
affection. Or you keep track of the people who wrong you and slight you. You try to think of something that, like that, something small that has called forth from you love or hatred or envy. And now think about the fact that you will die. And with you will go all the energy you spend and waste on the petty stuff. Your love, your hate, your envy dies with you, Solomon says. And if there are things that won't matter in our final days, why do we let them so dominate our days now? Life will eventually bring you real problems and real concerns, and those should call forth from us love and even hatred. But life is too short to lose sleep over petty things that won't matter much past this week, much less on our deathbed. The reality of death is, should be, a great reminder of what matters and what doesn't matter. So instead of letting self-centered, insignificant things dominate your attention, love other people, celebrate other people, delight in other people while you still live. And one other encouragement um, from these verses, if you're younger, I hope you know that there are a number, we have the blessing of this church of having a number of less young members in our body. We have people who are joyful, full of the Holy Spirit, and who have walked with Jesus longer than most of us have been alive. They've lived under the sun a good while, and I bet they've gained some wisdom about what matters and what doesn't matter. So get to know them and be wise. Ask them, what dominated too much of your attention and energy when you were young that you wish you had it? I bet you will learn something. Get to know them. <clears throat> so Solomon moves from the certainties of life in verses 1 through 6 to the joys in verses 7 through 10. And these verses function as some of Solomon's own application of what he just said. You will die and be forgotten, so what should you do? Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your grape juice, wine, with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Eat, drink, and be merry. That is the response to death's reality. But it's not just eating for food's sake. It's not just drinking for wine's sake. It's all done with the recognition that God has supplied the gift. So God has given us food and drink so enjoy them. He approves of your eating and drinking, assuming you eat and drink with gratitude. So this isn't just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for God is good. That's Solomon's first application. Verse 8 gives the next. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What, what is he talking about here? Well, when people are grieving in the Old Testament, what did they put on to convey their grief? Sackcloth and ashes. White garments are nice and light, and oil refreshes the skin, and they convey joy and happiness. And again, there are times when sackcloth and ashes are what you must put on. But if you have reason for joy, it's okay to look like it. You're going to die and be forgotten. So clean up and get dressed, Solomon says. 
Next, next application in verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. If you have a wife, enjoy her. If you have a husband, enjoy him. If you're not married, enjoy the people you live your life with. Why? He tells us. Because that is your portion. That is the life that God has given to you. And Solomon doesn't just tell us, husbands, to live with your wives or put up with your wives. He says, enjoy your wife. Cherish your spouse. Make time for each other. Your days are numbered, and so are your spouses. So enjoy your spouse while you have her or him. I remember just a couple of months before Anna and I got married, we were with her family, and I was talking to her grandfather, who's just a, he's a, a good man. At that point, he was probably in his late 70s, and his marriage was well into you know, past year 50. Uh, but he gave me a piece of advice that I haven't forgotten. He said simply, make sure you enjoy it. That was it. Enjoy it. And he said that he wished he had enjoyed his more. He had learned to enjoy it, but he wanted to make sure I had that commitment from the start. That sounds really simple, but it is often, uh, or it's, it's awful Solomon-like. Enjoy your marriage while you have it. So from food and clothing and marriage, he broadens it out in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Whatever you do in this life, do it with all your might. Life is too short for coasting. So whether you eat or drink or whatever your hand finds to do, do it all to the glory of God. That's the message here. Because eventually your work in this life, your thought, your knowledge, your wisdom... It will all end, he says, when you end up in Sheol. Sheol is just a name for the, the realm of the dead. Um, to be in Sheol, it's not necessarily to be in heaven or hell. It just means you're not alive. And when you die, when you are in Sheol, all the pursuits of your life will be gone. So while you live, do it with all your might. And it can't be a coincidence, I think, that much of what is described here sounds like a wedding. There's food, there's wine, there's white garments, there's joy, there's a husband and a wife. Why would that be the case? Because, I think, in the words of David Gibson, the best that life can offer is simply a foretaste of a wedding banquet to come. There will be a banquet where we will eat and drink with the Messiah himself, and we'll finally feel the fullness of joy that we get hints of here in this life. Solomon says earlier, I mentioned that God has put eternity into our hearts. And one way that we sense that, that we experience that, is through the joy of eating a good meal, of having satisfying work, of having someone to love. All these things are foretaste of a coming feast when those joys won't end like they do now, and they won't be tinged with sorrow like they often are now. Until then, though, it honors God when we enjoy the things he gives us. 
So if you've ever given a gift to a child, what do you, what do you want to see happen? You want to see the child enjoy the gift. Or if you give a kid a book, you want to see him read it. If you give him Legos, you want to see him build it. It gives you joy to see him enjoy the gift you gave. It would not be right to give a kid a bike and for him to say, I'm going to sell this bike and do something with the proceeds more honorable than this. <clears throat> that does not honor the giver. And so it is with food and drink and life. If God has given the gift, then we are to enjoy it to his glory. And Solomon says he approves already, so enjoy the gift. And it honors God because, for one, it's an expression of gratitude. And two, if you enjoy what you're eating and drinking, if you enjoy your spouse, if you enjoy the life that you are living, you know what you're not doing? You're not wishing you were eating something else. You're not wishing you were married to some, somebody else. You're not wishing you had someone else's life. You are content with the life God has given you. This is how you respond to the reality of death and evil. Enjoy your life as God's good gift to you. You can be married and content, single and content, a widow and content, poor and content, rich and content, and joyful in all of it. And this, this is not just glib optimism. We, we read verses one through six. Death is coming. This is a sober and hopeful response to that reality. And this kind of enjoyment is only possible for people who know God. The call to enjoy your life, it's not at odds with the call to pick up your cross and follow Christ and to deny yourself. They work together because if you don't pick up your cross first, you cannot enjoy life's gifts. Because we can only truly enjoy the things that we don't worship. As soon as our enjoyment of something ascends to the point of worshiping it, we ruin it. Because nothing else, nothing besides God can bear the weight of our worship. And this kind of God-honoring joy is only possible for those who recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights and that he delights in giving good gifts to his children. So we enjoy the people in our lives, we enjoy our work, and on Sundays, if you stay for potluck, you eat Little Caesar's pizza with joy to the glory of God. <clears throat> Why? Because God is good, and we might die tomorrow. So those are life's joys, and we'll enjoy them until the realities of verses 11 and 12 come our way. Verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. If you live long enough, you expect things to go a certain way. For the fastest person to win the race, for the strongest person to win the battle, and so on. And most of the time, that's what happens. Right? If you read Proverbs, this is the message you get, that there are these general patterns woven into creation. Hard work will bring reward, laziness will bring poverty, and, and so on. Those things are generally true, but not always. There may be patterns in how life works, 
but there is no formula. There is no formula for making sure your life is pain-free. So just as he said that the same event happens to the good and the wicked, so here he says time and chance happen to them all. When he says time, he just means that we will all eventually bump up against the limits of time. And chance, again from our perspective, he knows God is in charge. We are all eventually forced to react to circumstances that are totally out of our control. And the point here is that you know, despite the optimism we feel when we're young and the message we often hear, life is not our oyster. And we are not the master of our own destinies. Verse 12, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So try as we might, we cannot keep ourselves from calamity any more than a fish can or a bird. And that includes the final calamity that we will all face. Um, you know, I, I try to exercise on a somewhat regular basis. It's not an obsession. Um, I don't do CrossFit. Uh, but it's something I try to, to not ignore, at least. And one motivating factor for me is that if you trace my family tree back just two generations, so my parents and my grandparents, just six people, uh, there's only one person of those six who lived past 70, and three of them didn't see 60. So I recognize I did not win the gene pool lottery. So I try to at least maintain decent health. But I also recognize that I don't know when my time will come. I mean, my very efforts to extend my life, I could go on a run and get hit by a drunk driver. And my very efforts to prolong my life ended it. Psalm 139 says that in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has ordained just how long every life will be. And I can't extend it. An evil time, he says, will suddenly fall upon me. The best we can do is try to be faithful with the days that we have. So how, how would we summarize these 12 verses? I think Solomon is saying, you don't know how your life will unfold. You don't know how it will end. So enjoy the life you have while you have it. That is how you live in death's shadow. And if you are in Christ, you can rest easy because verse one describes you. The righteous are in God's hands. So even though you don't know how your life is going to play out, you have rock-solid promises that God is for you. He's going to complete the work he started in you, and he's going to take you to the, the golden shore. So you can trust him and enjoy your life as long as you have it and glorify him with it. If you are not in Christ, if you've never trusted him for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, these verses ought to terrify you because you do not know when you will be like a fish caught in a net. And if you die apart from Christ, the Bible says you will die in your sins and face eternal judgment in hell. But if you are, if you are not in Christ and you are hearing these words, you are not dead. And Solomon says there is hope for the living. Because while you live, there is opportunity to make sure your life isn't spent in vanity. You don't know the day of your death. But the Apostle Paul tells us that now is the day of salvation. 
So if you will acknowledge that God is your maker, that you have sinned against him, and if you will trust in Christ alone to save you, you can make sure the rest of this life and into eternity is spent not in vanity, but in glory. Believe on the Lord Jesus. A few years ago, I read a, a great little book called When Breath Becomes Air, which is a, a memoir written by this young neurosurgeon. And he, he's a, a gifted writer as well. His name was Paul Kalanithi. I think that's how you say his last name. When he was 35, I mean, this guy was at the top of his profession. He was brilliant, and the world was in front of him. When he was 35, he received a terminal lung cancer diagnosis. And he died when he was 37, left behind a wife and a young daughter. And the book is a moving, poignant reflection on his own life, his, his pursuit to, to try to cure uh, complicated diseases, his reflections on all these things, and then his own incurable cancer. And he says at one point in the book, I began to realize that coming in such close contact with my own mortality had changed both nothing and everything. Before my cancer was diagnosed, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't, didn't know when. After the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now I knew it acutely. The fact of death, he says, is unsettling, yet there is no other way to live. And I think Solomon agrees. If you turn back in your Bible just a page or two to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 7, 2. Solomon writes there, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. A good funeral is good for the soul. A regular reminder of death, I think, has the ability to burn away the distractions <clears throat> and to push away the petty things that consume too much of our lives. And for the Christian, you know, death can actually become a servant for us, a help in the cause of holiness. Because it was our Savior who tasted death for everyone and took away its sting. It was our Savior whose death destroyed death's power. And it was our Savior who entered death and came out the other side victorious. So we don't welcome death, we don't celebrate it, but we live in hope even as we face it, because we face it in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a gift you've given us by explaining our own lives to us in your word. What a gift it is to know that, that we are in your hand. And what a gift it is to be your people, to enjoy your generosity. Father, we don't want to be ungrateful. We don't want to be naive, thinking that somehow we will es escape life's difficulties. We know that eventually we will all walk with a limp. We will all bear scars. So please do not let us be so foolish as to think we can dictate our own lives. 
but help us to use the knowledge of eventual suffering and death to spur us to love you more with the days we have, to love the life you've given us as long as we have it, and to use it all for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.